we talked about the the fire movement and um, the fact that they did well in the lands where they conquered such as the Philippines and Latin America where there was no established strong um, religion but they failed to penetrate the pagan lands um, where there was an established religion and where the, the countries that they represented were not really giving them the entree and uh, there were a number of reasons for it but one of the main reasons was that as they were tied to the modality and they were amenable to the modality and had to give an account to the modality for their, uh, their activities that the modality insisted on conforming in terms of form unity of form or what was called the uniform hypothesis uniformitarian hypothesis now I want to give you two um, two examples of this and I think it will really uh, clearly um, highlight this one is a guy by the name of De Nobili D-E capital N-O-B-L-I he went to India and was India in India from 1577 to 1656 when he got there he dawned on him that the high caste of India was called the Brahmin caste and that if he really wanted to penetrate India that what he ought to do was get involved with them because they were the leaders and so what he decided to do was to identify with the Brahmins to become one of them not theologically but in terms of culture he embraced their culture in totally dressed like them he acted like them he whatever they did they he did and he used that identification with their culture as an entree for the gospel and was exceedingly successful because he was a priest he dressed like a priest he put on a uh, a robe of, of the uh, of the Brahmin caste and so forth the other guy was a guy by the name of Riki R-I-C-C-I he went to China roughly the same period of time 1552 to 1610 came out of the same order the Roman Catholic order of friars and he like the nobly decided that if he was going to reach the Chinese he ought to act like them he ought to dress like them he ought to adapt to them rather than expecting them to adapt to him and so what he did was he began to dress like one he, he put on the, the, uh, the Buddhist monk's robe if you would uh, he uh, dressed like a Confucian scholar because that's how they identified him as a foreigner both of these men had tremendously effective ministries just large numbers of people came to Christ through them but men from the Franciscan order the order from which they came came over and when they came to India and when they came to China they didn't recognize them they were so completely identified with the culture they didn't know who they were and were really offended by their total immersion into the Indian and the Chinese culture told them that they could not do that and so they got in a discussion about what the goal and objective of missions was and was the goal and objective of missions to have them conform to our cultural patterns or was it to conform to the biblical teachings and they received Jesus Christ and the Franciscans that they were interacting with said it was neither either or but it was both they insisted on uniforming, uniformity in terms of the forms 
And so the disagreement got so heated that they went before the Pope. And the Pope insisted that these two men, De Nobili and uh, Ricci, uh, return or adapt to the, the traditional Roman Catholic way, the Latin way of doing things in dress and so forth. And when they left, the whole thing just kind of cratered and caved in. And that is a, a beautiful illustration of a couple of men who understood what mission was all about. And you remember we left off this afternoon talking about that when we relate to the non-Christian, we get involved in a different culture. And the problem that these two men, Denobly and Ricky, faced are the same issues that we face today. That when we relate to the non-Christian, are we going to insist that they adapt to our way of thinking? Or are we going to, for their sake, adapt to their way of thinking? And whenever you cross culture, somebody's going to be uncomfortable. And the question is, are we going to insist that they become uncomfortable for our sakes? Or are we going to be uncomfortable for their sake and the sake of the gospel? And that is one of the most penetrating issues in evangelical Christianity today, in the whole issue of missions. The emphasis in so many fellowships is on method as well as content. And one of the reasons why those fire movements of the Franciscans and the Dominicans failed is that they embraced or tried to embrace both the method as well as the content. Any questions or observations on that? Well, that pretty well terminated their ministry. And the whole experiment failed. And I think probably it will be tomorrow morning when we see him, but the next guy that really tried that was a fellow by the name of Hudson Taylor. And he wore the Chinese pigtail and the robes and identified with them as much as he could. But see, so many of the missions, what they did was they, they developed compounds in which they... They developed little European or American settlements. And then they lived there, and then they went out from there to minister, rather than becoming part of the people. And it never really penetrated the culture. How about the Spanish missions into the American Southwest? Didn't they, uh, they didn't apply too much to who they were trying to. Yes, I think they were very successful. Yes, they were. And that was the, the illustration I was mentioning earlier. That that's where they were successful. In areas in which there was not a, a, a strong religion already, like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, you know, one of the major religions, and where they came in the wake of a conquest. See, the Spaniards conquered that part of the world. Yes. I just want to say, I, I know some missionaries in, in Japan, been in Japan, that had, came to this issue and, and decided that Western American culture was a result of Christianity, so they should promote that. Uh, so I'd like to say that. 
Yes. See, and I know that there are many people who feel that way. That being American and being Christian are synonyms. But see, I, what I hope we can see that as we move through the beginning days to where we are now is that the gospel has made its greatest impact when it was optional and when it conformed to the culture that it was trying to reach. When it was compulsory and it represented a particular culture or way of life, its success historically has been minimal. And I'm hoping that that's one of the things that we're going to see as we, as we move through this study on the history of the Christian movement. That's exactly right. Yeah. Amen to that. Okay, we're in the period of 1200 to 1600 A.D. We talked about the Crusades. We talked about the, the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church and the fact that their missionary efforts were thwarted because they didn't have the vehicle for it. We talked about a new form of monasticism, the Friars. And it was the first fresh approach to evangelism in a thousand years. Now the next thing I want to look at in this period of 1200 to 1600 AD was one of the great setbacks again to Christianity in Europe. And that was the Black Plague. It came about in 1346. It brought the gospel advance to a screeching halt. The Black Plague. Between 20 and 50% of Europe died in the Black Plague. But even more tragically, 90% of Christianity's leaders died in the Black Plague. Because the leadership of Christianity were involved in the lives of people helping them. And they became exposed and they dropped off like flies. 90% of the Christian leaders died in the Black Plague. 20 to 50% of the population. So it just decimated the advance of the gospel. It destroyed most of the monasteries. Because people flocked into there for help, knowing full well that the, the fires and these different Catholic orders were more than willing to lay down their lives for the sake of these people. And just absolutely annihilated them. On the positive side, it ended the Middle Ages. It ended the Dark Ages. What it did was it dealt the death blow to feudalism. There were fewer people to do the work. And then you all know enough economics to know that when you've got few people, the wages go up. And so therefore people were able to, to make demands on what they were worth. It ushered in the Renaissance with the emphasis on humanism. Humanism? Yes. Humanism simply is the deification of the human. The humanist says that 
that the human being is the most important person. Now, humanism is an outgrowth of Christianity. Now, there's a spiral effect, a cyclical effect, Bill, because, you see, man takes a look at himself and he says, man is worthless. There is no data that would lead man to believe that he has any worth. We are worthwhile because God declares us to be worthwhile. And so what happened was that as the church made its progress into Europe and it became Europe, I mean Christian, nominally through Roman Catholicism, then the people said, hey, man isn't too bad. As a matter of fact, we're pretty great. And so then it left the, the worship of God to the worship of a man. And uh, part of its expression was art and music, culture, education, uh, the development of the mind. A lot of the development of the sciences took place in this time. So a lot of positive effects out of it. But what happens is when man then becomes the center of his universe, he loses his perspective of what made him great. That is, he's created in the image of God. And so when man begins to live there for a while, then he loses that perspective and he slips back to his pre-Christian concept of man being worthless. Let's see it today. See, Christianity says man is worthwhile. Man says, boy, that's right. We really are worthwhile. We're really great. We don't need God. And so what do we do? We consider life cheap. So in communist countries, we exterminate 20, 30, 40 million people. In the United States, we abort unwanted kids. I mean, after all, if you drown unwanted cats, you abort unwanted children, don't you? A gynecologist told me that there are over 4,000 abortions a day in the United States of America. Multiply that by 365. And that's what you get. The deification of man always leads to things like that. The worthlessness of the individual. The Renaissance gave birth to humanism. Okay? Then the other thing that took place in this 400 year period between 1200 and 1600 AD was the Mongol advance. Genghis Khan united the Mongols in 1206. Now remember, we're talking about this same basic area which we call the human factory, right in here. And he bound them together at the beginning of the 13th century. China fell in 1215. Then he moved west and he overwhelmed the states of Central Asia. He moved as far as the Caucasus Mountains, which are a range of mountains right about here, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. He moved right down that highway, right to about there, and that's where he was finally stopped. Then right behind him, in 1336 to 1405, was another Mongol leader by the name of Timberlane. And these were ruthless men. He likewise conquered China but then was later expelled by the Chinese and moved um, west he went west and then through the Hindu Kush he came down the Khyber Pass and took a large segment of India and his mark is still felt in large parts of India 
And then from there, he swept up and again moved down that natural highway on into Europe. He, this guy, Timberlane, created the largest empire that the world had yet seen. It was larger than the empire of China, larger than the Roman Empire, or any other empire that had been on the scene up to that time. Timberlane, T-A-M-E-R-L-A-N-E, Timberlane, Tamerlane, or however you pronounce it. And then following on him was the conquest of the Ottoman Turks, and we talked about them. In the 1450s, Constantinople fell. They moved, the Ottoman Turks moved through Iran, Iraq, which is Persia, on into Turkey. As I say, Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453. And they marched all the way to the Danube River. They conquered Greece and were finally stopped at the gates of Vienna. Now, interestingly, in 1480, Ivan III, who was a Russian czar, one of the, the early czars of Russia, emancipated Russia from the Mongols and stopped the Turkish advance. The great opportunity to reach the Mongols and the Chinese was lost. Turkey, under the influence of the Australians, became Muslim. The door to Asia by land was now closed. Because all of this was run by this Turkestan and this whole area here was all run by the Ottoman Turks and the Mongols before them. They were all solidly northern. They couldn't get out this way through the Atlantic Ocean, the Sahara here, the Arctic here, the Urals here, and then the only outlet was solidly Muslim. So they were now locked in. The Eastern Church was modal, not subtle, and not missionary. And the advance again came to a halt. By way of conclusion, we again see the regression of the gospel. Its movement is backward. It becomes smaller and smaller in terms of its world impact. Mission programs started and aborted. The Mongols, which was a great opportunity for Christianity, turned to Islam. The Crusades, which came into existence during this period, were counterproductive. There were gains made in Russia, but the Eastern Orthodox Church were sterile. And certainly as sterile as the West. Then came the crippling Black Plague. Depleted the missionary ranks and the people that were really leading the Christian movement. The monasteries were closed as a result of the Black Plague things looked bleak. And the casual observer who objectively could take a look at the scene would have a hard time concluding that we were at last coming out of the Dark Ages, that we had finally turned the corner. But the fact of the matter is, we had. And this brings us into our next expansion, the fifth expansion, 1600 to 1800, a 200 year period. It's an expansion into the Western world. Now men, because we became landlocked in this area, Europe 
virtually was landlocked, it forced them to go by sea. And this was the rise of the great sea powers. It began before 1600, but it really moved into its own in the 17th century. For example, in 1492, Columbus discovered America. The build-up was gradual. Magellan, for example, reached out. Cortez went to Mexico. Peru was conquered. Vasco da Gama went to India around the, the Cape of, of Good Hope. So that they began to move out, trying to circumvent the funnel which was closed off for them. A product of this was the enslavement of Africans. Africans were enslaved and brought to Europe. Now, it's interesting that the Westerners learned this from the Arabs. And if you want a classic illustration of dissimulation, American blacks in recent years, to show their displeasure with the way they have been treated, have turned to what? Islam. Not realizing that Islam was the one that started the black African slave trade. because they came it was a reaction to Christianity because they equated their slavery with Christianity not realizing that the Christians from Europe learned it and got it started from the Arabs to whom they now turn in reaction to the Western Christians isn't that interesting? so this began Western colonialism and Western colonialism forced its will upon a large segment of the world. Now, gentlemen, never before had a race or a culture imposed its will on so large a portion of the world. And this colonial period lasted until the end of the Second World War. And the old men in the room, like uh, Harold Warren and Bob Foster, can remember the days when the British Empire was of such that the sun never set on it. Isn't that right, Bob? Bob? Well, not really. I'm a little boy. How about you, Al? Will you come clean? <laughs> That's right. See, even I can remember. Back, back during the Second World War and the tremendous trauma that existed at the end of the Second World War as these nations began to cry for their independence. Well, Argentina, you see, was never... Well, that's not true. Argentina was ruled by the, um, the Latins. But uh, they got their independence long before. Now, of course, they were like uh, the Falkland Islands back. But the truth of the matter is, and the Falkland Islands is an illustration of it, we're still reaping the consequences of this colonialism that began with the surge of the sea power around the at this period of time 16th century 17th century so what we see today in Africa is what took place in Europe from between 400 and 1600 AD tribes struggling to become nations 
And you look at it and you have, for example, in Nigeria or in um, uh, Rhodesia, which is now called, what, it slips my mind right now, it's Zambia. You have tribes that are in friction with one another trying to become a nation. That's exactly what happened in Europe with the Franks and the Goths and the Anglos and the Saxons and the Normans struggling with one another trying to, to come together. In 1945, at the end of the Second World War, 99.5% of the Western world was under colonial domination. In 1969, 23, 24 years later, 0.5% of the non-Western world was under colonial domination. That is the age through which we came. Tremendous upheaval and readjustment in the world. There are three prongs to this expansion. Commercial is the first. Now, although many of the companies were sent by the government, it was never the intent of these governments to rule the countries. For example, it was never India's intent to rule India. I mean, Britain's intent to, to, or intent to rule India. It was purely commercial. Then the second was the colonial powers. What happened was reports of cruelty by the missionaries and others concerned other concerned people caused the government to step in and exercise control. The exploiting of these people by the commercial enterprises caused their representing governments to step in and take over. And then the third prong of the expansion were the missionaries. They came in with the commercial, saw the atrocities and misuse, complained to the civil, and encouraged the civil to take over. During this period of time, the Pope, because he viewed himself as the secular head of the world, divided the world between the two great sea powers of that day, Spain and Portugal. And he simply got a map out, and he drew a line. And he said, okay, gentlemen, everything to the west belongs to Spain, everything to the east belongs to Portugal. And that's the way he did it. He's kind of an arbitrary draw of the line. And he said, have at it so you don't compete with each other. The next big event was the Protestant Reformation. And what I'll do is take a couple of moments and talk about the Reformation and we'll close it off for the night. It began officially in 1517 when a monk from the Augustinian order nailed his 95 pieces of grievance to the church door at Wittenberg. This was the normal means of redress in his day. He himself was surprised at the reaction. The problem was the Pope did not feel that he could act as he had acted so many times before with men like Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndall. The reason for it was that the Turks were knocking on the border 
Ketzel was in Germany trying to raise money for the war. The Pope had a balancing act on his hand between Germany, Spain, and France. France was his greatest concern. Now men, during these peri periods of time, there was a constant struggle, and we haven't taken time to go into it, but a constant struggle between the papacy and the civil leaders, or the, or the rulers, the kings of here, as to who was controlling what. And as a matter of fact, it got so heated that they set up rival popes, one in France and one in Italy. And for years, that took place. And it was an absolute scandal. And the Council of Trent, which formed the Counter-Reformation, actually came into existence not to counter the Reformation. It really started meeting before the Reformation took place. And it met to try to, to solve the embarrassing uh, situation that Catholicism was in as a result of this tremendous rivalry. And the rivalry came about as a result of this constant pull and tug between the secular and the church over who was going to call the shots. And these kings, because there was so much power in the church, said, we will appoint the cardinals and the bishops. And the Pope said, no, we will appoint them. And not only will we appoint those bishops, but we'll appoint you. You're not legitimate until we crown you. And so sometimes the Pope was winning, and sometimes the king was winning. And they went back and forth, back and forth. When Hildebrand was the Pope, one of the kings of Europe came and for three days stood barefoot in the snow, in repentance to the Pope. Got so mad at him that he turned the tables on the Pope and banned him. And that was a struggle that went on and on and on and on. The Pope was preoccupied with trying to stave off the Turks who were trying to, to conquer Europe. Tetzel was in Germany trying to raise the money. He was trying to keep this balancing act between the, the powers of Germany, France, and Spain. Pope had hoped that Frederick the Wise would become the new Holy Roman Emperor and unite Europe. That was his hope. But Frederick the Wise had established a university at which Luther taught. And Luther became his favorite. And Frederick would not move against Luther. And so this gave the impetus to the Reformation. Calvin, who was a Roman Catholic priest, in France began to read some of those writings and he and another man by the name of Zwingli started to move into action and launch out and the Reformation was in full swing. As I mentioned to you, the Roman Catholics in order to try to to, um, to patch over and cover the, the schism that was in the present in the church and to, to try to eliminate the scandal to which they were going formed the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent then became the arm to counter the Reformation. And they went into a 30-year war. Wrestling with this. When they were done, interestingly enough, the dividing line between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism was the dividing line of the old Roman Empire. And the people that were outside of the Roman Empire, in order to maintain a distinctive, stayed Protestant. And the people in the old Roman Empire, in order to maintain their distinctive, stayed Catholic. 
Let's talk for a moment about the effects of the Reformation. First, let's talk about Latin Europe. Latin Europe would include countries like Spain, Italy, France, these countries. Not so much France, the southern France, but mostly Spain, Portugal, Italy, this area. Those countries were immune from the Reformation. And those countries produced the great minds and the great leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. The movements, the monastic orders, all of these came out of Latin Europe. The Reformation never touched it. Then there was what I would call the barbarian Europe, which was part of the Roman Empire. It embraced the Roman culture and it flirted with Protestantism. But it became the most susceptible to the Counter-Reformation. So, for example, France, Northern France, Southern Germany, Switzerland, in these areas, which had embraced the Roman culture, but was not really enmeshed in the Roman Empire. It flirted with Protestantism, but when the Counter-Reformation came, it was the most susceptible to it and converted back into Roman Catholicism. The exception to that was England, which had rejected earlier the Roman culture. Then the other group were the Northern Europeans. And I would include in that Northern Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, those countries. They were never part of the Roman Empire. They became Protestant and most successfully resisted the Counter-Revolution, the Counter-Reformation. Isn't that interesting? Again, you see the effects of viewing your, your theology and your spiritual in light of your own culture and the way you were raised. Now, let's talk just for a moment about the Counter-Reformation. The Slavic countries, interestingly, were Russian Orthodox. The Poles were also Orthodox. They were not Latin until the Russians became Orthodox and they converted immediately to Catholicism. They like they what? I'm sorry. Well, there certainly were personal convictions in it. Well, I'm talking about conversion from Catholicism to Protestantism, or vice versa. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. Like Henry VIII did. Now, there were a lot of men who felt very strongly on both sides of them that were deeply committed, like Thomas More, who lost his head over it because he refused to relent on Roman Catholicism. But Kramer, who did switch, 
was adamantly Protestant and I think a genuinely born again man. So I think that we're talking about men who may have been Christian or may not have been Christian as the case may be, but they made the switch. Their convictions changed in terms of the form, not the content, but in terms of the form, Tom, because of this whole problem of dissimulation. Yeah, no, I may, I may communicate that it happened, you know, in a minute. It didn't. It happened over a period of years. See, Ireland converted back to Roman Catholicism, not back to, converted to Roman Catholicism as a reaction to England becoming Protestant. Now, that didn't take place in a night. But it did happen in a very short period of time. And the same with the Poles. Now let's talk about the Counter-Reformation just for a moment and then we'll quit. The Counter-Reformation started before the Protestant Reformation. What it came about for, this is the Council of Trent, it came about to instill life into the church. There were many new and fresh movements such as the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. These missionary movements carried the faith to the Americans. But it was also, as the Reformation took effect, a reaction against the Reformation. And, as a result, the Inquisition came in about to stamp out the Protestant heresy in these countries. In 1622, yes? Can you tell us what the Inquisition was? You mentioned it. Yeah, the Inquisition was a a, a quasi-spiritual civil authority that had the blessing of the church leadership who ran civil courts to try people on their orthodoxy to stamp out heresy. And of course, in any time you have that freedom of being able to equate the, the religious with the civil and, and, and have the judicial arm of that thing like the Gestapo in Germany it just really went to excess and I'm not trying to say that the Inquisition was like the Gestapo but I'm simply saying that a lot of people innocent people died and there was a lot of brutality in it in 1622 well, yeah, there were. I don't know how many died in, in, in the Inquisition, but for example, they had uh, the church sanctioned the annihilation of the Protestants, they're called the Huguenots in France, and on two different occasions, one of them on St. Bartholomew's Day, they just simply went into the churches when they were meeting and killed them. This is always referred to as the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, and that was probably one of the more brutal, brutal forms, was down there in Spain. Correct. But see, so back in those days, they played for keeps. I mean, they, they, they felt strongly about it. They didn't talk about the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Everything was essential. I mean, Katie barred the door if you didn't agree. I mean, a guy came into um, Geneva preaching a Baptist form of, of government and, and theology 
and uh, he was burned at the stake. And uh, Calvin was the guy who was responsible. And Calvin tried to talk it over with his elders and tried to encourage them not to burn him. Calvin wanted strangling. <laughs> but there was, there was never any doubt as to what to do with the guy. It was just a matter of how he was going to die. <laughs> so back in those days, you know, they they really played for keeps. He was Southern Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was the original Southern Baptist. <laughs> Well, we do have the firewood ready, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> uh, no, you're wrong. John the Baptist was the original Baptist. Oh, I, <laughs> that's right. He died an untimely death also, didn't he? Yeah. In 1622, Pope Gregory XV formed the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. And that was an important turning point in Roman Catholicism because he took the initiative for mission from Spain and Portugal and placed it in his own hands. And he said, the papal see will be responsible for missions. The Vatican. Pope Gregory the Fifteenth, in 1622. And the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, I think it's still in existence today, isn't it? Yes. <coughs> Am I right, you Roman Catholics? Isn't that right? Yes. <coughs> okay. What was it called again? Okay, it was called the Sacred Congregation. <coughs> the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. Okay, why don't we quit there? And Bob, since you didn't elect to go to bed, why don't you come up here and tell us what you'd like us to do next? It's 20 after 9. No, uh, this is strictly optional. A lot of you fellows uh, who stay together in various cabins uh, got to be 
either in the cabins where you're staying or tomorrow morning that uh, Thank <laughs> you.